So our reading for today is Psalm 103, and you can find this on page 605 in the Church Bibles. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness is with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding and obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all who all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's start with a prayer. May the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm not sure how I got here this morning. I uh, went to the car, got Spotify, got Handel's Zadok the Priest. You might have heard it. Um, it's the, one of the first power chords, I think, in classical music, when that choir just goes vump up to number 11, even though it only goes up to 10, it's a number 11. And really, the next thing I knew, I was here parking outside St. Columns. I don't know if I went through red lights, I'm not, I'm not sure what happened, but there we are, safe and sound. Well, today we're continuing our topic on worship, and what an important topic it is. We can fall into the trap of sometimes doing it unthinkingly or habitually and without much reflection. On Easter Sunday, Karina and I were very fortunate to be in London, the biggest day of the Christian calendar in one of the great cities of the world. It was not the coronation of a king, but it was the day when a dead king comes back to life. We decided that as we'd come all that way, we'd better attend two worship services. So in the morning, we went to Holy Trinity Brompton, and in the afternoon at Westminster Abbey, Evensong. Two totally different styles of worship, but both had great appeal. We arrived at Holy Trinity Brompton at least half an hour early because we knew it was a very popular church, only to find it locked. The band was practicing inside, and as the only the English can do, somebody very politely said, we can't let you in just yet. So we sat in the rear garden there, and there was the spring sunshine, just us and the squirrels. But when we did get inside, the first thing I noticed was the huge coffee, pastry, and fruit selection at the rear. It's the best coffee shop in London. The people were warm, 
They were friendly. Before long, the band started performing. People were swaying and raising their hands in worship. There were many smiles. At the chancel, right at the front, the focal point was the drummer. He was slightly elevated behind a huge group of musicians and uh, he was uh, surrounded, encased on all sides by this uh, see-through glass to deaden the sound. And as he flayed away on the drums, hands contorting in all directions, I remembered those old films of Harry Houdini, who used to be wrapped up in chains and put into a, a, a jar of huge water and tried to get out. It shows you how what my mind does during worship service. The preaching was excellent. There was a traditional Church of England liturgy when we came to Holy Communion. And during the last song, there was a series of mild explosions because they had these confetti machines everywhere. A huge celebration at the end. Well, if I had to sum up that worship service that day, it was energetic and it was warm. Later that day, Westminster Abbey. The first person we met there was the security guard who checked our bags and our coats and we lined up with all the other tourists and then we were allowed to come down the nave and, you know, we tiptoed past Churchill and the unknown soldier you would have seen it last night if you were watching. And most of the congregation sat in the, the north and the south transepts and uh, we were in the south transept poet's corner and uh, right near me was that bust of William Blake the poet and it's the most fearsome thing you've ever seen his eyes skull-like staring at you uh, just behind me thankfully was our own Adam Lindsay Gordon and much more benign in marble he looked well nobody raised their hands in worship but we did feel transported many of us it was lovely the choir as you probably heard last night were angelic in that beautiful heavenly cavern. Wherever you looked, there was beauty. The preaching was precise with that perfect English enunciation. There was no mobile photography and there was certainly no confetti at that one. As we left the abbey, there was the dean. I shook him by the hand and I wished him a very happy Easter on behalf of the good people of St. Columns Hawthorne. And he'd never heard of us, but I've extended an open invitation. If I had to sum up that, uh, that service in two words, transcendent, and awe-inspiring. I felt closer to God. You will have noticed that when I was describing those experiences, I spoke about the how, the when, and the where of worship. How was the worship conducted? When did it happen? Where did it take place? And the, the nature of the place, its surroundings. The how, the when, and the where of worship are the questions that church congregations spend a lot of time mulling over and arguing over. How should our service be shaped? Should we put more emphasis on prayer or music? Is it better to start at 9.30 or 10 o'clock? Where should we position the font? When will he finish preaching? These how, when, and where questions are the ones that cause division and acrimony, sadly. In the 1890s, here at this very church, there was a heated evening debate with a few hundred people in attendance. It lasted past midnight. The contentious question was whether the choir should be robed. One side argued that a robed choir would look professional and it would encourage people to join. Others were adamant that it was a slippery slope and we were taking the first steps towards high churchdom and even popery. Ultimately, they were robed 16 years later. People leave churches over such things. The how, the when and the where can split us. The Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church split over when to uh, worship for Easter. I would argue that the most important questions, the fundamental questions, are the who and why of worship. Who do you worship and why are you doing it? You might think that the who question is pretty straightforward for us sitting here today. The person we worship is God, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But not everybody shares that point of view. 
There are thousands of people in Hawthorne this morning who are not worshipping our God, but they are probably worshipping or idolising something else. Human beings are created for worship. We feel an urge to worship something, but in our fallen state, we often forget or refuse to worship God. And God knows this. The first of the Ten Commandments, the first two of the Ten Commandments, worship only your God and don't bow down to idols. Over history, we flirted with false worship in many forms, nationalism, communism, the cult of celebrity. The great challenge today, and I see it in schools, is that we've entered a narcissistic and an entitled age where we worship ourselves. If you're spending all your time trying to find satisfaction and purpose by tweaking your online image, then you have no time for God. True worship requires humility, to put the spotlight on someone greater than ourselves, who is truly deserving of our praise. And yes, humility too is going out of style. Well, let's turn our attention to Psalm 103. If you have a Bible there, you may like to open it. If you could only devote two minutes a day to reflect upon God, his word, his character, his mercies, you could do a lot worse than simply reading this psalm each morning. It puts everything in perspective and provides great assurance. It answers those important questions of who do we worship and why. The length of the psalm has been structured according to the number of letters in the Hebrew alphabet. 22 letters, 22 verses. So it gave a sense of completeness and comprehensiveness to its original readers. Verses 1 to 5 is a call to prayer and a reflection upon, upon what we have personally received from God. Verses 6 to 18 consider God's mercies generally to his people and the character of his reign. Verses 19 to 22 is another call to prayer, but this time from the perspective of the entire creation, including the heavenly realms and the angels, a climatic ending. Let's turn to the first five verses. They remind us that worship is not only an intellectual exercise, nor is it only an exercise of the emotions, but it captures all aspects of the human body. Praise, my, praise the Lord my soul means I praise God fully and in the entirety of my being. These opening verses are a personal call to prayer. The psalmist is intentionally choosing to worship and wants us to do the same. It is an activity of the will. God does not force, force us to worship, for worship involves freely exalting and glorifying God. As fallen, sinful humans, worship does not come naturally, and we sometimes have to fire ourselves up with enthusiasm when we choose to worship. The psalmist fires himself up by reminding himself and the rest of the assembly of why God is worthy of worship. And we should regularly remind ourselves of the benefits we have received. The list is an impressive one. The forgiveness of sins, the healing of diseases, a life redeemed from the pit, God's love and compassion and satisfaction in life and a sense of renewal from following God. With a list like this, why wouldn't you worship God, says the psalmist. In the following section, verses 6 to 18, the analysis broadens, encompassing God's mercies to his people generally throughout history. When I was teaching my daughters how to drive, some time ago, it was a case of do as I say, not as I do. I was continually reminding them to use their rear vision mirrors. My mantra was, if you don't look backwards, we can't move safely forwards. Similarly, followers of God look backwards, reminding themselves of God's character and all that he has done throughout redemptive history so that they can move forward with assurance. For Christians, we look back to the cross. For the Jews, the great moment in their history was being redeemed out of Israel and receiving the law 
as it was handed down to Moses. We can rely on the past acts of God because God's character does not change. He will not do something out of character in the future. He is predictable in the best sense of the word. He has been, is, and always will be compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. This is why we worship him in confidence. The psalmist in verses 11 to 18 then draws a stark comparison between humans and God. We are transgressors, children made from dust, fleeting like grass and flowers blown away by the wind, barely remembered. But these limitations and foibles are easily overcome by God. His love extends to the highest heavens. He can remove our sins from us as far as east is from west. What a lovely picture that is. An infinite distance. He has the compassion of a father. And as our creator knows us intimate, he saved us and he will always remember us. We may be limited spatially and temporally, but God has no such constraints. His love and power extend everywhere, forever. God's ability to transcend space and time means that we are also effectively unconstrained. We can approach God at any time and place to worship. He is able to overcome those things that might stand in the way of an enduring relationship. He has that power to overcome our sins, our frailties, our mortality. He redeems us for eternity. This is why we worship. Worship is not confined to the earth. It extends throughout the entire created order, including the heavens and the angels. In the final verses, the psalmist's call to worship is amplified. We reach a fitting crescendo as we remember that we are not alone in worshiping our creator. The universe, all there is, all that there will ever be, worships him. And not only humans and angels and the heavenly hosts, but as Psalm 19 reminds us, even the stars and the skies in their beauty and wonder declare his glory and the work of his hands. As winter approaches, and Sundays seem rather bleak, as you hear the mid-morning siren call of smashed avocado and good coffee at some distant cafe. Remember that the God who knows you better than you know yourself has answered the why of worship. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Amen.